Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. If you got a Bible, I want you to turn to me to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. Exodus 14, verses 15 through 31. Exodus 14, verses 15 through 31. And, and we have been walking through the book of Exodus. We actually started in chapter 6. We didn't cover the life of Moses. I, I want to do that at a later point, a later time. We talk about Moses and leadership. Um, but, but we've been journeying through the, the life of God's people through Israel. And, and God has chosen a people for himself, chosen a people to save for himself. And, and they are on a journey to follow God. And, 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 and last time I was up here a few weeks ago, we, we saw God bring them out of Egyptian bondage, brought them out of slavery that they were in for many, for many, many years. And God saved them and delivered them. And so now God has them in a place um, uh, where, where they're in a, uh, they have an interesting dynamic going on. This is a very peculiar place. And honestly, it's a place that they would much rather not be. So much so that they are actually longing for how things used to be. But man, this journey with God is, a, is, is an amazing, interesting journey. And, and, and we reach a pivotal moment in the life of Israel. And we reach a pivotal moment here in the life of the Christian faith when we read this passage Exodus 14, verses 15 through 31, and it says this, The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Why are you, why are you complaining? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I, I, I don't want you to read this like this is a children's story. I want you to read this not like it's in a coloring book, but I want you to read this like this is actually happening in a point in history to real people, because it is. And so I want to t- tell you what God tells Moses. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. And here's what God says he's about to do. As for me, I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, meaning that that the Egyptians are going to follow the Israelites into the water. And I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army and his chariots and his horsemen. God states his purpose in verse 18. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord who was going in front of the Israelite forces moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and stood behind them. And it came between the Egyptian and Israelite forces. There was cloud and darkness. It lit up the night and neither group came near the other all night long. I need you to imagine that there's an army, an army of people that are coming after them. They are by the sea. They have nowhere to go. They have nowhere to turn. And the enemy is coming on them and he is on their heels and they can see him in the distance. And they are coming and moving in fast. And so there's a pillar of cloud over, over the heads and the pillar of cloud is allowing them to see everything. And the pillar of cloud makes a move from in front of them and gets behind them. I need you to imagine that. And then here's what happened. 
Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, just like the Lord told him. And the Lord, not Moses, but the Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. The Egyptians set out in pursuit, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen, and went into them after the sea. During the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to serve and, and, and made them drive with difficulty like they were on I-4 at 5 o'clock. And once they saw that traffic on I-4, they said, well, you and I said, let's get away from Israel. The Egyptians said, because the Lord... Because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. It's amazing what the enemy recognizes that we can't. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from the Lord, threw them into the sea. The water came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone out after them into the sea, and not even one of them survived. Here's the beauty. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground, with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. That day, that, that day, the Lord saved Israel. The Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in him and in his servant Moses. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, Father, that your grace is sufficient. God, we thank you that there is no one like you and no, no one beside you. And so, Father, I, I thank you for the saints that have gathered here today, Lord. I, I thank you for all that you're going to do in our lives today, God, through, through the word of God. But ultimately, God, this is not about us today. It's about you. And so, Father, as we study your word, teach us about you. As we study your word, teach us how to live in relationship with you so that you may be glorified in our lives. And so, Father, we thank you today for everything that you're going to do and everything that you're going to say. I, I pray today, God, that our minds, our hearts are free and clear to worship you, God, that we would worship you while we sit here. As, as we listen, we would not just listen, but we would actively engage with our hearts, God. And so, Father, I pray that you would do only what you can do. Save us, sanctify us, and be glorified in us. And I pray ultimately, Lord, that your son Jesus be glorified. It's in Christ's name we pray, and the people of God said amen. You may be seated. From the sermon series, God With Us, my sermon title this morning is Saved for the Glory of God. Saved for the Glory of God. How often when we think of our salvation, do we think of our salvation in personal terms. We, we tend to think about being saved. We think about it being about us. We, we tend to think naturally, quite, quite naturally, we think that when God saved us, he saved us 
because he loved us so much. And, and, and partially, that is true. That, that is not an inaccurate understanding of, of our salvation in Christ Jesus. But, but more than God saving us for us, God has saved us for him. God particularly saved you and I for his glory. God saved us so that God can be glorified through us. Let me tell you something about life. Life is not about you and I and what we can do, but life ultimately, ultimately what life is truly about, life is actually about God. Life is actually about the glory of God. You may not know this, but you were not created to serve you. You were actually created to serve God. You and I were created to serve God with our lives. Our lives are to be a reflection to the glory of God. So, so when God saved us, God saved us not just for us, but God did save us because he loved us. But ultimately, God saved us for himself. God saved us so that he could get more glory in the world. So we think about our salvation. We, we should refrain from just thinking about us, but we should think about the God that saved us. We, we should oftentimes ask ourselves, why, why did God save me? And, and if I understand that he saved me for himself, does my life reflect a life that reflects his glory? If that is what he saved me for. And here's what we find in today's story. We reach the climax in the book of Exodus. Exodus has several climaxes, but this is like the main thing that happens in the book of Exodus. This Red Sea experience is the highlight of not just Exodus, but this is the highlight of the Old Testament. Some would argue that this is the second greatest miracle in the Bible. And so we look at the Red Sea experience. This is the greatest miracle and demonstration of the power of God in all of the Old Testament. All of the children's coloring books, all of the stories, all of the Sunday school lessons we've learned about the Red Sea and all the attention that's been given to this, to this experience, this thing that, that has happened to the people of God is for good reason because it is the seminal moment in the life of God's people. This is such a seminal and watershed moment in the history of the people of God that the scriptures, particularly the New Te the Old Testament, keeps looking back and referencing this moment. The prophets keep looking back and referencing the Red Sea moment. Every time we look at the book of history, they're looking back and referencing the exodus in the Red Sea. There are over two dozen references to this moment throughout the Old Testament. And so it should make us ask the question, what is, the, what is the significance of it? Yes, God parted some water. That's a really cool thing that he did. But what does that have to do with anything else? The crossing of the Red Sea is so significant because it serves as a paradigm, a model for our salvation. It is a model for the Christian salvation. When we see the Exodus story, we shouldn't just see Israel, but we should see how God has parted the Red Sea for you and I. Let me explain. The people of God at this juncture, you know this if you were here a few weeks ago, they, they have left Egypt. God has delivered them from Pharaoh. God has caused Pharaoh to let the people go after almost a hundred years of hard bondage and slavery and labor. God has set the people free. God leads them though. Once he takes them out of Egypt, God leads them on a very specific and unusual route. And there's a shorter route to get to the promised land where they're, they're supposed to be going. But for some reason, God doesn't take them the short route. 
God doesn't take them the short route. God, God goes in this unusual route. He has them go this unusual route, and he has them camp out by this sea. He has them just camp there, just, hey, just, just hang out by, by the sea. And I'm sure they're wondering, why, why did God lead us this route when there was a shorter route to get there to their ultimate destination? But, but God knew something that they did not. If they went the shorter route, it would have killed them, so God tucked them in a different direction to protect them. Now, this is something that I think would preach. Sometimes God doesn't take you the short route because God knows that the shortcut would actually kill you. And so God has them go the long way because the long way is necessary for them. The the long way is the way that they will learn about God. The long way is the way where God would sanctify them and not just bring them physically out of Egypt. God would get Egypt out of their hearts. And so this is what God is doing. He has them by the sea. They're just hanging out camping there. They've been saved. They've been delivered. But then as they are camped out by the sea, the worst thing that they can imagine has happened. God saves them, and then life gets difficult as they got, when they get saved. Th- things are no, no, no longer easier for them. And they, they look up, and the Egyptians, who decided to let them go, have changed their minds. The Egyptians realize where are we going to get slave labor from if the Israelites are gone? This economy is sucking right now. We ain't got no Israelites over here. The housing is slowed up. Supplies are expensive. Real estate in Egypt is through the roof. Property values are high because they can't make any more houses. And they're looking for labor. And so Pharaoh says, you know what? Before it's too late, I heard they hadn't gone that far. Let me go after them. And so one day the the Israelites look up and their worst nightmares come true. The army that is more powerful than they are have come to take over. And the Israelites see them off in the distance. The Israelites are terrified at this point. They're standing between the edge of the sea, on the seashore, and as they look off in the distance with nowhere to go, the incoming Egyptian army that is more powerful than them is coming and they are barreling down on them. And so they are stuck between a rock and a hard place, literally. They, they, they have nowhere to turn. They have no options. The worst nightmare has come true. They thought they got away from the enemy, but the enemy that they thought they got away from is staring them right in the face. And so Moses utters these wonderful words to them. In in verses 13, 14, we covered a couple weeks ago, Moses says this to them. These these are the strongest words, some of the strongest words in the Bible. He reassures them, gives them confidence, and here's what he says to them. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. See the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. And I I bet they were wondering, well, how can we never see them again when they're right there in front of us? But Moses uttered those words, and he tells them that the Lord will fight for you. Here's what you got to do. Shut up. Stop complaining. God sees what is going on. He sees the Egyptians. He knows what's coming. He sees the trouble. He sees it off in the distance. God is not standing idly by. God sees what is happening to you or what you perceive is happening to you. God is not in the distance. God is not on a lunch break. God is not taking a nap. God is not out to brunch. God is where God is. And Moses issues this incredible statement of faith to the people of Israel. Moses knows what they are facing, but he heard God's word, and Moses believed what God says. But in here, verse 15, the first thing that we see, we see something interesting. God says to Moses, he says to Moses, 
Why are you crying out to me? Now, now, mind you, I just told you in verses 13 and 14, Moses gave them this incredible statement of faith. Moses says to Israel, stand firm. See the Lord's salvation. He's going to fight for you today. You don't have to do anything. Just be quiet. But then when we see God come up on the scene in verse 15, God is addressing Moses like Moses did something wrong. He says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. Why would God Rebuke Moses when Moses doesn't do anything. The the problem is, is that Moses, although he's not guilty, God is speaking to Moses because Moses is the leader of Israel and he represents them. Moses is a mediator between God and Israel. Moses is actually close to both God and Israel. He identifies with Israel, so their guilt is actually on Moses, but he's also close enough to God that later on we'll see God's power working through Moses. And so Moses, when we look at him, Moses is not just some ordinary dude. Moses is actually a mediator. Moses is a middleman. Why is that important for me? Why is that important for my faith when I read the Bible because Moses as mediator, the middleman, points forward to a greater mediator that identifies with the people, but not only will this mediator be close to God, this mediator is also God himself, and he is the Christ man, and Moses points us towards Jesus. Jesus is the greater Moses, and so Moses is just a precursor to what we will see later show up on the scene in Christ Jesus, and so Moses stands between God and the people. The people get in trouble. God doesn't rebuke the people. He rebukes Moses. When God wants to do work, God doesn't do it himself from heaven. Sometimes, oftentimes, God uses a person, and God is working through Moses, the mediator. He is close to the people, and he's close to God. And so this is why we see God rebuking Moses. He says, why are you crying out to me? And I think this question, before we move forward, this question deserves some attention because I think it's obvious why they're crying out to you, God. They, they are stuck between a rock and a hard place. If I saw my arch nemesis, who is more powerful than me, if the worst thing that I could imagine was coming true, come, it, it was coming towards me, I myself would be complaining too. I would be worried too if I thought they were going to come and get me what I thought I had got away from shows up on shows up on my doorstep. I think that I would be complaining too. This is an intense situation that they find themselves in. What they imagine could never happen has happened. They've left the oppressor. They got out of bondage. They got out of slavery. They were in that and now they're free and this ordered this group who they got away from is now sitting right in front of them and this ain't no ordinary group. You can't just block the Egyptians from social media. You can't block them from texting you on your phone. They're an enemy that you can't resist because they're stronger than you are. And up until this point, they are the most dangerous people that exist. And he says, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. Break camp? What what does he mean by break camp? Tell them to start packing up their stuff. Tell them to get their belongings together. I know they've been camped out by the sea, but now it's time for them to make a move. Instead of them complaining about what's going on, instead of complaining about the problem that they see off in the distance, tell them to break camp, get ready to move, to pack up all of their stuff. And I imagine that the Israelites are saying, wait a minute, God, let us pray about it. Let let us pray about it. I know that's what you're telling us to do, 
but let me, let me pray about, let me, let me keep thinking on my obedience when you're clearly telling me what to do. I think the Israelites are a picture of us when God gives us instructions and we need to pray about what God already told us. That they're pray- let, me, let me pray about this. I know what God said in this word, but, but let, me, let me pray about it. Let me consider. And, and he said, break camp. You don't have time to wait. When God tells you to do something, just do what God tells you to do. But they keep praying just like we do. Let me just pray about it a little while longer. Why do we keep praying about stuff that is already clear in Scripture on what God wants us to do? They want to pray about what God has said. And I think for us, this is a good lesson for us. Let, let, let me keep using prayer as a mask for my procrastination. I'm really just procrastinating, but I'll cover up and say I'm praying, by, I'm praying about it. Prayer is great and prayer is necessary. Don't, don't hear me saying that, that prayer is not good. We, we should pray. We should always pray because that's what the scripture tells us. We should pray because we are in a relationship with God and he loves us and we love him and we want to commune with God. We should always be praying. Everything is worth praying about. But there are times when we use prayer as a means or an excuse to stay stagnant. Sometimes we say that we're praying about a thing just because we don't want to move. And, and, and I'm not talking about move to Atlanta. I'm, I'm not talking about moving to Dallas. I'm not talking about moving to some major city for a job. I'm talking about praying, about being obedient, about what God already said in his word. And and, and so they just want to pray about it. But prayer can oftentimes be a scapegoat to cover up our comfort. How long have you sat in something talking about I'm praying about it when you can go right to God's word and see what he said about it already? And this is what they're doing. And he's saying to them, there comes a time when you have to just move forward. I love how Charles Spurgeon, who's called the Prince of Preachers, theologian Charles Spurgeon, said this about prayer. Far be it from me to ever say a word in disparagement about the holy, happy, heavenly exercise of prayer. But, beloved, there are times when prayer is not enough, when prayer itself is out of season. When we prayed over matter to a certain degree, it then becomes sinful to tarry any longer. Our plain duty is to carry our desires into actions and having asked God guidance and having received divine power from on high to go at once to our duty without any deliberation or delay. It's time for them to move. And it's just sitting there and God tells them to break camp. And I think this is a good, this is good for us. For, For people who procrastinate about making a decision to trust in Christ. How many times have you, 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 you told somebody about your faith or you invited somebody into a relationship with Jesus and they said, you know what, I, one of these days I'm going to get my stuff together. I, I promise, as soon as I clean this stuff up in my life, I, I'll be to church with you next Sunday. As soon as I stop drinking, I'll come to church. As soon as I get over this little issue, I'm going to give my life to God. Newsflash, if you could have got over it, you would have done it already. You don't have the power to do it. That's why you need God. And so there's never a time to trust Jesus like the present. If you are struggling in obedience today, if there are issues where you struggle, if there are things where you're just having a hard time with, God says, just obey me today and stop praying about it. Because little do they know, when they obey, God is going to move on their behalf. And here's where we are. And God addresses Moses. Moses, here's what I want you to do. Take your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. 
And so the staff of Moses is just this symbol. It's a symbol that represents the power and the presence of God. There's nothing really special about Moses' staff. It's just the instrument which God uses. How about this? You and our staffs. Nothing special about us, but we're just instruments that God uses to get his glory in the earth. And Moses has a staff, and he tells him to hold your hand out and divide the sea. Now, I tried to put myself in this story several times, and, and I, I, like, I like the beach, and, and I like to go down to South Florida and get in the water. And, and I was just trying to imagine if God, like, put a little stick in my hand, like I was walking to the beach and got a little stick, and if I just put my stick out over South Beach, would it open up? And I can't get to this in my head. I, I just want to imagine just all of the, of the ocean just parting for me because I stuck my hand out over it. Yet this is what God is doing through Moses. God, God is doing this. And I'm, I'm sure Moses was like, what? But okay. And God uses Moses and brings forth this miracle. But it should make us ask this question. What is God's purpose in even doing the miracle? Couldn't God have just killed the Egyptians on their way to get to the Israelites and they could have just avoided going around the water in the Red Sea? Surely God could have done that. But God tells us what his purposes is in verses 17 through 20. As for me, I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh. All his army and his chariots and his horsemen, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory. Through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. I want you to stop right there. God tells us why he did the Red Sea right in that verse. God does this for God's glory. God's purpose is do, in doing the miracle is for the glory of God. God wants his glory to be revealed. Let me pause for a moment and tell you about the glory of God. The glory of God, we oftentimes talk about it in church, but we don't even know what we're talking about. The glory of God actually means that we ascribe weight. We ascribe substance, significance to God. We, we recognize God for who he is. When we say we are glorifying God, what we're saying is this, that there is nothing and no one else that is greater than God is, and no one else deserves my praise and worship and my honor more than God does. And so when we say we glorify God, what we're saying is, God, there is nobody like you. There is nobody more important than you are. You, are, you alone deserve all the glory, all the worship, all the honor, and everything in my life reflects back to you, God. You deserve glory with my life. This is what the glory of God is. And so God is concerned about his glory. God is concerned that people recognize him for who he is. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, God reveals his glory in specific ways. And God reveals it here in this text. And God reveals the glory through a cloud. Before we, we learn that, that there's this cloud, this pillar of cloud that, are, that, that is leading the people of Israel through, through their journey. It's leading them. And, and at this moment, the glory cloud does something different. The glory cloud is still there with them. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm perplexed because I'm, I'm trying to see myself in the story. The glory cloud is always there with them. The glory cloud is representative of God's presence with his people. And so if you can tangibly see God with you, why are they ever worried? If, if God has been with them through this entire journey, 
what are they afraid of? And I know you're sitting here today wishing, man, I wish I could see the glory cloud. And I knew God was with me when I'm sitting at work sometimes and I hate my job and, and my coworkers. I'm just wishing the glory of God would just show up. What if I told you that you have something better? What if I told you that you had the Holy Spirit? They can see his presence. We live his presence. And this cloud moves from in front of them and goes behind them. And here's what happens in the story. The cloud moves behind them so that he can provide light for Israel, but he makes it dark for the Egyptians. They can't see them. And so here's what we see God doing for Israel, even in the midst of a difficult time, even in the midst of the fear. When the glory cloud moves behind them, God is actually protecting them. And you know what else God is doing? God is giving them time to get their stuff together. So when I see this glory cloud and I see God behind them, what I see is a God who protects his people, but I also see a God who is patient with his people. Aren't you glad that God actually gives us time even in our disobedience? That God waits for us? That God has this cloud behind them now to give them time to get their belongings together to prepare for the journey. At the same time, he's protecting them from their enemies. That's, that's beautiful what God is doing for them in this story. And so God is giving them time to do this. And then finally the moment comes, the miracle comes, and Moses stretches out his hand over the sea. And the, the water divides and it's, it's held up on both sides of the Israelites. And they walk through the sea on dry ground. This is an incredible story. But you, you and I think of water, we go to water for peace and tranquility. We go to the beach to chill out and to, re to relax. We, we go into the pool to relax. We, people put fountains in front of buildings as a symbol of peace. But what if I told you in those days, Water in the sea was symbolic of chaos. It was symbolic of death. And so when God tells them to go through the sea, he's literally telling them to go through the shadow of death. And for everybody that's in here wondering, or if you're listening and you're wondering, yeah, I don't really foresee God actually holding water up on both sides. I actually liked a little bit more of the practical stuff that God talks about in the Bible. I can't get with this sea stuff because I've never seen it happen. Well, I want to I just challenge you here. If you are a follower of Jesus and you believe that God is the creator of the heaven and earths, if you believe God spoke and then there was, then I have no problem believing that if God created the water that we see, then God can surely hold up the water that we see. That, that if God is a creation who created something out of nothing, surely he can step into his natural order and pattern of doing things and disrupt it to save his people. And this is what we see here. God is just being God. God is just being God. But you know what? Miracles teach us something. Miracles teach us that God is sovereign and God is in control. He's sovereign over everything, over all of his creation. But you know what else miracles do? Miracles serve to convince us to trust God with our lives. If I was there, I like to think that if I was there and God parted a sea and I walked through, I would have no other questions for God. And you're thinking the same thing. 
But the problem is we're just like the Israelites. A week less than after they got through on the other side, they were questioning God once again. And that's just like us. No matter what God does in our lives, we find ourselves in seasons of doubt that God can do what God says that he can do. But the people find themselves in an interesting situation. I'm sure they're walking through this sea and they're thinking, man, this water is going to come down on us at any moment. Mind you, they're not walking and running through. They got their stuff with them. They got all of their luggage in their suitcases with them. They got Louis Vuitton and, and coach bags and everything with them. They got all of this stuff with them, walking through. And they're thinking this water can come down on us at any, at any moment. They have a right to be afraid. No, no one in their right mind, if they're faced with these two choices, either go into the Egyptians and let them capture and kill us or walk into this water and drown. None of us would be calm and cool and collected through this. But, but, but most of us, most of us in the room would struggle with this scenario. And here's God with them. But this is a picture of the human condition. All this is is a picture of the human condition. We, we, we have all suffered under the bondage of Satan, sin, and death, and we have needed God to save us. We have all been in a situation where we had no other options. Every, uh, every sinner that is sitting here today is in the same condition. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. The Egyptians or the Israelites, neither one of them can swim. And the, and the Israelites, they can't fight, so they can't beat the Egyptians, and they can't swim. They're stuck between a rock and a hard place, and the only person that can save them is God and this is our plight in the world today that we're stuck in the same condition and the only person that can save us is God there's nothing that we can do about it two things I want to bring to your attention about this number one they can stay on the shore and be captured by the Egyptians but for them to stay on the shore and not do what God tells them to do is a refusal to trust God and reject his way that he's made for them. And so for them to re reject God and not trust God means death. The other option that they have is to walk through the sea, although it's uncommon, although it's an extraordinary escape route, it is the way that God has provided for them. That this is a story of the Christian life. Oftentimes people say, well, why do I have to trust in Jesus? Why do I have to go this way? Why, why is it that I have to do it this way? The, the question should be, why did God make a way for us at all? This is what's happening in the text. The question isn't why did he part the sea? The question is, why did he part the sea for me? This should make us turn and worship God. This should make us worship God. When we think about our faith, oftentimes we think about having faith for things, having faith that God would do this, and having faith that God would do that. And I'm not trying to tell you that, that, that that's wrong. But there's something else that's important. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 29, 11, 29. Hebrews eleven twenty nine, and look at what the writer of Hebrews says about our faith. He's looking back to the Exodus story. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea as they were on dry land. And when the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. God provided a way for them that they could not do for themselves. And so we see this, and we see this option that God has given them through the Red Sea, it should bring to mind something like John 14 and 6 where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is a Red Sea for us. Jesus makes a way for us to be saved. This is only something that God can do. I want to read something for you from, for you from Pastor Theologian Tim Keller. Here's what he said about the same text. He said, some walk through with confidence, but I know that there was a bunch of others walking through thinking, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Oh my gosh, they all walked through with completely different qualities of faith. They were all equally saved though. Why? Because you are not saved based on the quality of your faith. You are saved because of the object of your faith. The object of our faith is Jesus. The quality of your faith does not matter. What matters is the object of your faith. Now, oftentimes people say, I have faith. I have faith. Every, as long as you have faith, doesn't matter what you believe in, as long as you have faith, you're good. That's not true. The object of our faith is what is important. Because you may believe wholeheartedly and someone may struggle in their belief, but they believe. But what makes our faith legitimate is not our believism. What makes our faith legitimate is the object of our faith. The object of our faith is God in Christ Jesus. And so when we look at this, we're looking at a God who loved his people enough to save them in an impossible situation. But I want you to see personally for us, there's nothing that we could do to save ourselves. And someone may be listening today saying, if I could just accomplish one more thing, if I could get one more job promotion, if I could join one more organization, if I could earn one more dollar, if I could get one more follower, if I can impress one more person, then I'll be just where I need to be. Fool's goal. None of that will save you, nor can it save you. And that's not to say you shouldn't achieve stuff, but if you think that it will help you in the way of eternity, eternity, it is a futile effort. Nothing can save us but God. Our salvation is in God alone, people. The difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites is not that one was bad and one was good. Both were bad. The only difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites was that one chose to believe and trust God and one did not. The Egyptians got into the water. God threw them into confusion. They start swerving. They have a moment. They have an epiphany. We got to get out of this water because God is fighting for them. They recognize what Israel does not recognize, that God is on their side. God tells Moses, put your staff back over the water. The water comes back up to its normal levels, drowns all of the Egyptians, including Pharaoh. And the scripture tells us not one of them survived. Not one of them survived. Here's a sad reality. This is not just for Pharaoh. This is a picture and a warning to anybody who refuses to trust God. You see, the Egyptians had everything that they needed. They were powerful. They were strong. They had resources. They were vast. The Israelites had little of nothing. The one thing that separated them was their faith. The only thing that can save you and I is our faith. And I want you to look at these last few verses and see the response of the Israelites. Verses 29 through 31 says this, but the Israelites 
had walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. And that day the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him. They feared the Lord and believed in him. How do I respond to the saving grace of God? Our response is always worship. If God has saved you, your right response is to worship God with your life. That's, that's our only response. And worship is not just a song we sing in church. Worship is not just coming to church on Sunday. Worship means that I honor God with my entire life. Everything that I do, I do with God in mind. That everything I do for the glory of God. This is about salvation by grace alone in Christ Jesus. And I want to say this as I close. I want to say this. It's beautiful to know that God has saved us and that there is nothing that we could do to earn and deserve salvation. There's nothing that we could do to earn it. God rescued us. He took the initiative to rescue his people. The, the, the Israelites could not come up with an idea to go through the Red Sea. That, that was God's initiative for them. This is what our salvation is like. God initiates our salvation. But although salvation is a free gift, how we respond to it matters. Here's what Paul said to the church at Corinth as he related their faith to the Red Sea experience, and I'm done. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 2 says this. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Here's what he's saying. We all experience this Red Sea thing, all of us, in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ went through a Red Sea himself. He, he was walled up with death on every side. When Jesus went to the cross, Jesus was parting the Red Sea for us. And what the Red Sea should have done to Israel happened to Jesus on the cross. But then it merits a response. Paul tells them this. that He didn't want them to be unaware about their baptism in the sea. Because what he wants them to know is this. That there is a proper response to what happens to you. How you live in response to what God has done for you matters. Therefore, we cannot and must not long for and return to that which God has saved us from. He's urging them not not to be idolaters and not to worship the thing that God has set you free from. that, That we don't want Christ plus something else. We want Christ and Christ alone. And the crazy thing about the Israelites is, is that although the Israel, the, the Egyptians are dead right there on the seashore, They no longer than they got saved and got on the other side were longing for Egypt. How crazy is it for us to long for, to miss that which God has set us free from? For the Israelites to desire to go backwards, to go back to bondage, to slavery, to go back to that which God rescued them from would be like a person who was rescued from the sea, brought to shore, desires to be dropped back into the middle of the sea again. 
you and I would look at that person and say, hey, they just brought you out. How crazy do you have to be to do the same thing again? But this is what it looks like for us when we long for that which God saved us from. And here's what I want to say to you today is that we need the power of the Holy Spirit which God has given us to help us, to equip us, to strengthen us, to continue in our journey with God. For some of us, God has told us to break camp. You've been dealing with that long enough. I've set you free to move forward. And the question today is to ask you, number one, what has God instructed you to do that you've just not done because you're comfortable in Egypt? And secondly, maybe it's not, maybe it's not a sin. Maybe it's not something that is evil, but maybe the season of it is over. What has God told you to no longer deal with so that God can therefore get the glory in your life? What, 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 what are we vacillating about today? What, what thing, what situation, what scenario, what relationship, what struggle, what habit, what mindset, what thought process, what thought pattern, what people are we still dabbling with that God is set us free from? We have to ask ourselves this question. Because when I see this, I don't see a God that is afraid to save his people. I see a God who longs to save his people. So that when people ask the Israelites, tell me about your God, they can say, I can testify about his goodness because he brought me out of an impossible situation. The greatest miracle is not that God parted the Red Sea. The greatest miracle is that God raised a dead man from the grave. And we share life in that man because his name is Jesus. And so when God raised Jesus from the dead, he raised us too. And if the Red Sea points to the cross... When God parted the Red Sea for the Egyptians, for the Israelites, he parted it for you and I. There is nothing that God can't save you from. But it's not because of you, but it's because of his glory. And our right response to that is to worship. And I'll leave you with this. John 5 and 24 says this. John 5, 24 says this. Truly I tell you, whoever... Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. And this is the same thing that happened to Israel. They crossed over from death to life. This is not just their story, but this is our story because it's God's story. Let us pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, 
we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.